Oh, Louisiana, four million people, 15 last names. Let's see if you guys, see if we can get this so you can see this. This is a picture of what it's like to listen to Walt. It's not that it, it, it's not that it tastes wrong, it's just a lot to swallow. Oh. No, there have been, um, there have been some comments at the conference about how amazing, um, uh, Bob Foster and Walt are. You know, uh, although Walt's only, what, 37? So it's not, but Foster's in his 80s and, um, and just amazing how vibrant both he and Walt are speakers and active and, and, uh, I have wondered what has enabled them to do that. And I think it might have something to do with having both having spent a lot of time in Colorado Springs because when I flew in here uh, at the airport, I stopped because I had not had anything to eat on the flight to grab a sandwich. And I was sitting next to a couple, looked to be middle-aged. And um, I heard the wife mention about the husband. They were obviously heading out on a trip about his Social Security check. And I looked at the guy, and I, I, I had to interrupt him and say, I, I got to compliment you. You're in tremendous shape. To be 65. And he said, who said anything about 65? I'm 75. I said, whoa. I mean, you really look great. What do you attribute your longevity to? He says, uh, clean living, uh, eating right, and picking good parents. I said, well, what did your father die of? Who said anything about dead? (laughs) He said, my father plays golf and travels as much as I do. I said, well, what did your grandfather die of? He says, who said anything about being dead? He says, my grandfather's 115. He just got married. So why would he want to get married? He said, who said anything about wanting to get married? (laughs) (laughs) Oh. Faith in the marketplace. Um, I find that... um, Many men hear great truths at conferences like this, come across them in their Bible, walk into their office and never connect the dots. And uh, it's, it's almost a little bit like in the movie Casablanca, if you have the famous scene where Peter Lorre goes to Humphrey Bogart and he says, Rick, do you despise me? And Humphrey Bogart looks at him and he says, I don't know, I guess if I thought about you at all, I'd despise you. <laughs> And I hate to say it, but there's a lot about the way we approach God's Word in the marketplace. We don't think about it at all and its application to what we do in our day-to-day jobs. Because faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, as it says in Hebrews 11.1. 1. As Waltz described it, it's commitment without knowledge. We all know what that looks like in business. You can't go into business and not exercise faith. We know exactly what it means. It's risk-taking. It's gambling. You know, we invest our time, our money, often our relationships in an idea, in a product, in a service. And uh, we have no hesitation in doing that. We, and the hope is that we will come out of it with more money than we went into it with. There's a hope for gain. And uh, we all uh, move in that direction at the office. 
We exercise faith every time we hire somebody, uh, every time we buy a business, a piece of land, some office equipment, uh, some uh, buy some stock. That's that's an, that's an illustration of faith. Uh, when you do a business plan, when you bid for a new client, you borrow money, you sign a contract. Uh, uh, for all that, for that matter, when you get married, it's an act of faith. Or if you get in a car, some of my friends say, and drive with me, it's an act of faith. You're taking a risk without knowing. And we have no problem with that. But is that what pleases God? Because we know that Hebrews eleven six goes on and says, without faith it's impossible to please God. Well, is it the faith as a character trait that pleases God? Or is it something different? And I'm going to suggest to you that the only kind of faith that pleases God is faith in Him. Not faith in your ability, not faith in an idea, not faith in your business or the economy, product, whatever. Because Hebrews 11.6 goes on to say, after saying, without faith it's impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. It's about God. It's relying upon and acting on God's statements. That is the only kind of faith that pleases Him. If you ever want to talk about faith, you have to take a look at Abraham, who's the great biblical illustration of faith. In Romans 4.18, in the tremendous discussion of the life of Abraham, it says, In hope against hope he believed in order that he might become the father of many nations. We go into business, and in hope against hope we believe in order that we might make more money. Some other thing that we would perceive as gain, just as Abraham. But that's not what, if you stop there, you make a huge mistake. Because it goes on to say, according to that which had been spoken. He wanted the game, but the faith was in what God said. So shall your descendants be. It goes on, and if you read through verse 21, it makes comments like, Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. And at the end, and being fully assured that what he, God, had promised, he was able also to perform. See, faith that pleases God, faith in the marketplace, faith in the marketplace only relates to our belief in what God says and our acting upon that. Everything Abraham needed and everything God demanded of him, he obtained by faith in God. Not faith in himself or faith in anything else. Any questions or comments on that? Okay, let's move on. Well, how do you shift this business faith that we all exercise every Monday through Friday uh, to God and his word in business? And you need to be honest with yourself as you look at this because the truth of the matter is most businessmen really don't trust God. You know, like Gary, you got to ask yourself, do I believe him? Do I feel lucky? Because he is going to ask you to do some things that will make no business sense if you start to make application of biblical truth in the business setting. Well, the reason you trust God is the same reason you trust the bank. I can, I've told guys, use the illustration, I could open a double wide trailer and say, the bank of Hank, come on and give me your money. 
And nobody's going to walk in. And why is that? Because they, they're looking for three things before they're going to trust you, before they're going to bet and t- that you're going to have the money that they put in there when they need it. And those three things are character, capacity, and commitment. You've got to have those if you're going to trust anybody. Those, all three of those items. First one is character. Oh, you don't put the first bank of the mafia. You don't put money in there. You want to, che- you want to look at a bank, check the reputation. Has it, you know, has it met its obligations? Is it solid? Is the president and the board of directors an upstanding set of citizens? You look at the character of the bank. It's reputation. You look at the capacity of the bank. The reason you don't put money, if you just a new bank where it's a double-wide trailer, is it doesn't look like it. You don't, you don't want to put money in a facility where they may need your checking account to pay the electric bill. You want to make sure they got capacity. They got way more money than you. They got money to lend. They got so much money they can lend it out. So they got to have the capacity. So we want to know those same two things about God. Does, is he trustworthy? And you only know that by doing a little research and getting to know him the same way that you do the same thing you do with a bank. You check on his capacity. What's his track record? What are his resources? All those kinds of things. And so you, you answer that. And then you still don't put your money in. If you, I mean, even if they've got great character and great capacity, you don't just walk into... There's a lot of businesses like that and, and give them a check for $1,000 because they'll just cash it and go to the bottom line. They have to make a specific commitment. You put your money in, and whenever you want it, you write a little check, and you get it back. We commit. So you can have all three of those things. You have to have character, capacity, and commitment. If you need that to go to the bank, you need to go through that exercise with God. And many men never do. They just kind of walk along, and as a result, they really don't trust Him. Pharaoh had the right idea when Moses approached him. He said, let my people go. He's a businessman. This was a main capital of Egypt probably at that time. It was a huge resource. A million workers producing these bricks. and they, All they had to do was feed them. They'd have to pay them. And uh, when, he, when Moses says, let him go, he says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? He's being honest. We need to, to, to ask the same question. And... Um, then he goes on and he says, I do not know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. So whenever you disobey God, it's a, it's a reflection of a lack of faith. Every single time. That's why in the Bible, faith and obedience are almost synonyms. I mean, I know it's a little bit, it gets a little confusing, and you've got to draw the lines in the right places. But guys, uh, Paul talked about the obedience of faith. And they're literally treated as synonyms. So if you don't know God, you're not going to believe Him. If you don't believe Him, you are not going to obey Him. Show me a guy who leaves his wife, and I'll show you a guy who doesn't know God. It's that simple. Draw a straight line. Paul said the same thing when he got mugged by God on the road to Damascus. In Acts 22, starting at verse 70, describing, he's describing that event and he asked the same question, but he did not, like Pharaoh, have a conclusion already drawn. He said, Who art thou, Lord, in verse 8? And he said to me, I am Jesus the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. And what does he say right after that? The same question we have. What shall I do, Lord? 
said many, you've heard it said many times, the only legitimate question after you accept Christ as your Lord and Savior is what do you want me to do today? You're the Lord. You're the boss man. You run my life. What do you want me to do? Pharaoh understood that. Paul understood it. We need to understand it. Biblical faith always results in changed behavior and action. It's got to be real in every area of your life. If it's real at home and it's real at the church, but it's not real at the office and it's not real at all. It's not real at all. And if you don't know God and you try to obey Him, you may be able to pull it off for a while because you'll look good to the crowd that you're hanging around with. But you cannot sustain it. You cannot sustain it. You'd be like King Amaziah who it says in Chronicles 25, he did right in the sight of the Lord, yet without a whole heart. Amaziah did a lot of things good, and he came across a really tough business deal. He had a competitor named Edom. They were going toe-to-toe. Uh, he made a strategic alliance with the nation of Israel, which was apostate. And one of, the, one of his brothers... At that time, a prophet came up and said, you can't do that. God's not going to honor that. You need to let him go. And of course, Amaziah says, yeah, but I already paid him. I'm going to lose money. If I, follow, if I obey God, I'm going to lose money. Well, he does it. But not long after that, it says, he no longer followed the Lord. And that will happen in our lives. We will no longer follow the Lord. Because you can't pull it off over time unless you really know God. Do I need to switch mics? Something about me just ticks it off. Oh, you know, this one's still on. <laughs> there we go. So, to help us obey Him, God gives us revelation with His commands. There's a connection because He knows the better you know Him, the more you're going to be able to trust him. So God always connects it to. In fact, the verse that Walt cited uh, in, in John 14, 21, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and will disclose myself to him. As you obey, God gives you revelation so you know him better, so you can trust him better, so you can obey him better. Because faith is based on God's character and it only operates in the boundaries of His will. You need to know Him. If you believe anything contrary to God's will, that's not biblical faith. It has to be in coordination with and exactly matching His will. And so without a knowledge of God's will, there can be no real faith exercised. That's why in prayer you can't ask in faith if you're guessing at the will of God. One of the purposes of prayer is to wrestle with God to come to his will. And then you persist once you know it. And uh, So the prayer of faith is the prayer that's made in the absolute assurance, or as best you can tell, assurance that this is what God wants. And then you can pray in faith, and then you receive it. Then you're praying in Jesus' name. He didn't say if you have enough faith... You can do what I'll do whatever you want. He said that uh, if you'll put your faith in me, I'll empower you to do whatever I want. And the same thing 
transposes over to business. Revelation demands a response. But what does it look like in business? See, most men will readily grab onto the promise of heaven. It's the red part. That's a little tougher. It's just right there. It's right in front of you, and you're not so sure. And this was the problem that Israel had in the desert. I think most of the Israelites believed God was going to give them the promised land. But when they got out there and they got a little short of water, they started to grumble. They stumbled over the water and the food. And eventually, because they really didn't know him, and and later he went on the Psalms and says that Moses knew God's ways, but Israel just knew his deeds. They really didn't know him. Eventually, they finally hit a Kadesh Barnea, and they say, no, I don't think so. And the same thing will happen for us. Same thing will happen for us. Well, what are we up against? Because uh, faith in the marketplace requires a lot of thinking. You have to uh, look at your business and all the issues and one at a time think about how God would have you deal with that and make application. An exercise we go through in our office is we sit down and say, okay, what biblical principles would have application to this issue? What do we need to be careful of? And a lot, there's usually 10 or 15 of them that you kind of put together and we'll even jot them down. And you'd be amazed at how they will help you to make business decisions. But you got to stop and think. And the first thing that uh, is a problem for us is the velocity of life. Most businessmen purely react. They're very pro, very little proactiveness. In fact, we we really struggle to get away to do any planning in our business. It, we're just so darn busy, just staying up. Uh, Thirty million Americans, American men, claim to be stressed out. I think that I think it was that our Someone asked the question about what the big problem is. And two of the three people up here yesterday evening said, stress, we're, over, we're overwrought. 36% of men in the United States are rushed all the time. The average office worker is interrupted 202 times a day. We have 36 hours of work sitting on our desk, just on the top of it, on average. We spend three hours a week just shuffling piles to find the one we're supposed to be working on. Spend eight months of our lives opening junk mail, you know, one year looking for misplaced object. And by the way, they even know now, you know how far the average misplaced object has moved? <laughs> Ten inches from where it's supposed to be. <laughs> the average American gets two and a half hours sleep Less than he did 100 years ago. In 1850, the average American slept nine and a half hours a night. By 1910, it was nine hours. Somebody invented electricity. (laughs) 1950, it was eight hours. Somebody invented television. By 1990, it was seven hours. Get an idea. He had computers. They invented the Internet. Al Gore did anyway. The average American, of the average American worker, only 10% gets 30 minutes or more for lunch. 90% take less than 30 minutes for lunch. 
We work 14 more hours, I mean, sorry, 14 more weeks a year total time than the average Norwegian in the United States. We, work, we, have, we lead the world in hours worked and productivity. In church, it now takes 20 to 30 phone calls to get the same number of volunteers it used to take two to three to get. Because people are so busy, they can't, you, can't, or you can't even catch them on the phone. Uh, eight of ten Christians uh, admit that they pray only on the run. Of course, we're faced with a lot of change, more so than ever in history. James Thurber, I love what he says. says Man is flying too fast for a world that is round. Soon he will catch up with himself in a great rear-end collision. <laughs> oh. But you know, you never see Jesus in a hurry in the Bible. But you know, he, he didn't heal everybody. He healed the person right in front of him. My problem is, I want to heal everybody, but the person right in front of me is an obstacle to get out of the way. See the difference? The next problem we have in addition to the velocity of life is my natural inclinations. Then the Lord saw the wickedness of the man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Proverbs 14.12 says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And of course, the famous verse in Jeremiah 17.9, you know, the heart, is, the heart is desperately wicked, is wicked beyond, well, anyway, bad heart. <laughs> Deceitful, who can understand it? I should have written that one down. But you take that, you combine bad natural inclinations plus very little time and it's, is it any wonder we have a lot of trouble and we look bad it's interesting in that great book on chaos the book of judges it says in those days there was no king in Israel everyone did what was right in his own eyes and of course that's the theme that the book starts there and ends there uh, that was the problem that caused all this chaos uh, and you contrast that with what it says in 1 Kings 15.5 about David, because David did what was right in the sight of the Lord. See the difference? Right in your own eyes, right in the sight of the Lord. And had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all his days in his life, except in the case of Uriah the Hittite. So this is David, both, in both situations, people were doing the right thing. It was who got to define it. As Walter described, uh, many of God's commands are counterintuitive. So if you do what's right in your own eyes, you're going to get into trouble. You're going to get into trouble. And so, one, if you do what's right, it's an indictment. If you do what's right in God's eyes, uh, it's an example for others to follow. So your instincts and your normal business Principles and the counsel of ungodly men will lead to you being called a hypocrite. See, I'll tell you that even apart from abiding in Christ, even your perception of reality is distorted. If you haven't had, if you if everything looks like it's going wrong, you might check: Have you been getting any time with Jesus? 
I love in Jeremiah 44, 16 through 23, it talks about Jeremiah confronting this. After they've already been really wiped out by uh, Babylon, a little group of them rebels and they head down to Egypt. And he's telling them, don't you get it? You're getting chased around here because you've been disobedient. And they say, no, you don't get it, Jeremiah. Things were good back when we used to make sacrifices to the Queen of Heaven. Since they didn't know God, their perception of the facts was all wrong. They read them entirely wrong. Well, the same thing happens to us. We will misperceive reality if if we don't abide in Christ. Another problem that we have is success principles that we get bombarded with in the world. Our culture, our culture teaches us to pursue success. And I don't have time today to talk about that. Uh, Winston does as good a job as anybody I've ever heard on that topic. But the point is, you define success in some fashion by recognition, money, power, or academic achievement. And it's always driven by comparison. We've talked a little bit about comparison already. But uh, if you buy into those principles that what you can conceive, you can achieve that success is worth giving your life to, and that it's a formula uh, you bought into serving God and mammon, and you just can't pull it off. Uh, it will derail your walk with God. Talking about comparison and competition. You ever notice how you are happy with your automobile till your buddy gets a better one? I love Steve Farrar's example of cutting his back lawn. and You know how your grass looks when you just cut it? You know, it's all neat. Gets a glass of lemonade, sits down. He just, it just, he says, man, I got the best place on earth. This, I, I, who could be any happier? Reaches down, picks up a better homes and gardens. <laughs> and in 20 minutes, he thinks he lives in a roach trap. That's the way we are. That's the way we are. And we, we actually talked about this at dinner last night at John 21, right? Really the last extended conversation Jesus has with Peter when he tells him about uh, when he's old, he, he's going to be taken where he really don't want to go. And he's, Jesus understands he's predicting an unpleasant death. And so turning, he saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. And Peter, therefore, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I, if I want him to remain until, the, until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. If the guy gets a better car, what is that to you? God gave him a better car. Just more to be accountable for. Better house, better salary, better basketball player, better wife. What is that to you? Gave you what I wanted you to have. Follow me in that situation. So all of us want to be Joseph and Daniel. Nobody wants to be Jeremiah and Paul. But if Jeremiah and Paul had pursued running a kingdom, they'd have been in sin. And if, Jer- and if uh, Joseph and Daniel had pursued the ministries that God gave to Jeremiah and Paul, they would have been in sin. Just follow Jesus. Where does he got you? What does he want you to do? Comparisons are an affront to God. And uh, you've got to remember that although the world preaches, you know, get, live better than the Joneses, strive to improve yourself, discontent is a legitimate motivator, and so is competition. 
that Luke 16, 15 says, that which is highly esteemed among men is detestable in the sight of God. I mean, do we really believe that? If it's highly esteemed among men, chalk it up, it makes God sick. Do you believe that? American Christianity is another hurdle to faith in the marketplace. My church is bigger than yours. Got a better pastor. Uh, and I'll tell you that in most churches, if you are successful from the world's definition, you give a little money, you keep your sin profile low, you will end up in leadership over the godly janitor who gives way more as a percentage of his income. Unfortunately, in America, we've embraced a business model for church, and you go to church for an experience, to get your felt needs met, and to be entertained. And people jump churches as easily as they change favorite TV programs. And it's a shame. Yet the health, wealth uh, doctrine. You know, I've got God so I can whip the world. He wants me to be successful. What if God uses the world to whip you? As he says he's going to do in Hebrews 12. That he's going to discipline you. Because he cares a, a little bit more about you than your car and your home. 1 Thessalonians 3.3 3 says, So that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that you have been destined for this. Do you really believe you've been destined for trials? That's the plan. Or have you allowed yourself to set your expectations on health and wealth? And if I'm really walking with Jesus, everything ought to be going well. There's a book out, and uh, I certainly uh, have no probably no right to say this, but it's called Halftime, and it's a book Walt made me read a few years ago. And some of you guys might have, have read it, Changing Your Game Plan from Success to Significance. It says in there, in the first half of your life, if the first half of your life was a quest for success, the second half is a journey to significance. All I'll say to you is that book is full of, in my opinion, really bad advice. Really bad advice. And if you read it closely, I think you'll see that. He, uh, you can never legitimize delayed obedience to God's commands. Just get my little nest egg put aside. Then I can afford to follow Jesus and be significant. There's only one significant person in the universe. In fact... Significance is a person, and he's got a monopoly on it. And where our goal is that he might increase, that we might decrease. I'm just not sure what that means to pursue significance. And I certainly don't want to legitimize the pursuit for success. But you've got to read it yourself. Oh, he sold more copies than my book. It just... Um, a lot of this, unfortunately, just does not fit the American mindset. Self-reliance is another one. I would, you know, you'll hear, actually, a lot of people, the same people suggest that, Amer- that we became a great country because we followed God will say we became a great country because we're self-reliant. And they never see the inconsistency of the two. I don't think either one is true, by the way. 
But uh, my Bible says that apart from me, you can do nothing. So what part of that is hard to understand? <laughs> and wh- how does self-reliance fit in there? I don't know. Uh, God says all the results are in his hands. And yet um, we just act as though that's not true all the time. And a lot of it has to do with the fact we simply don't trust him with those things. And so we grab them because we want control. First uh, Corinthians 4, 7 says, well, What do you have that you did not receive? But if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Any questions or comments? Winston said I had to ask that for the people who weren't paying attention. And then, oh, good. <laughs> see, I see question and answer sessions as a competition. <laughs> hmm. Yes, therefore it's idolatry for me, boy. I'm a, a world. I'm a world of illustrations of all the bad stuff. I don't have to go. I don't, all these lessons about. I didn't have to go read anything to come up with all these. They're all in my life. Compartmentalization and privatization, two big words that are unbiblical. Um, our lives are an integrated whole, guys. Uh, what you are in private is who you are in public. You're not two different people. Uh, God does, you know, the statements that God doesn't relate in business. My faith is a private matter. What you do in your private life is irrelevant. Uh, you never talk religion and politics at a party. Uh, that's what the world says. Uh, Jesus said in Luke 16, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Uh, guys, um, we're the same person wherever we go. <laughs> we're the same person wherever we go. You cannot compartmentalize your life, and certainly you cannot compartmentalize sin. <laughs> sin is not... A cut, it's cancer. It goes everywhere. Nothing in the Bible supports either boxing God out of any of an, a certain area of your life or of keeping your faith out of any relationship. Uh, E-squared applies to your biggest customer. You should be looking for an opportunity to tell them about Jesus and who cares if he moves the business. Every relationship, every area of your business. Somewhere men got the idea that seeking profit was wrong when God says seeking profit. So it's great just seek eternal profit because we think somehow it's a, it's a dirty habit, but yet we look at business. If you don't make a profit, you can't have a business. I mean, let's, you can't, you've got to make a profit. So we figure God just must not know much and he just doesn't understand. So we, we keep him out. We eliminate him from the marketplace. And he is either Lord of all or he isn't Lord at all. There is no halfway. It's just like the Bible is either the Word of God or it's just kind of an interesting book with some truth in it. Those are the only choices. Privatization. You know, the sad thing is I know more about Elizabeth Taylor and Pee Wee Herman than I do my neighbor. You know, people keep everything private. Yet TV is full of 
information about people you'll never know, see, or should have any concern about. And we don't stop and ask the guy working in the cubicle next to us, how's it going? How's your family? That's private. I don't know. I, you know. We just don't connect the dots. Next one. The lie of the fulfilling career. Really, Jerry did a great job of killing this one yesterday. But uh, somewhere, our culture developed the idea that meaning and purpose and fulfillment and satisfaction could all be had from a great career. I need to change jobs. It's not there. Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. I guess we could have saved them the trip, huh? We didn't need that, Jesus. We can get it from our job. It's obviously not true. And all that concern about careers is, if you look through history, it is incredibly recent phenomena. You just don't see through history. You see no one in the Bible wrestling with their career. Now, I've looked through the scriptures and I've still only come up with two places where it talks about career. In Ecclesiastes 9.10, it says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do with all your might. Colossians 3.23, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Here's God's comment on your career because you're going to wrestle. You know, you're in college, you're wrestling with Whatever. Whatever. It doesn't matter. That's not to say you don't think about your job. But guys, it can't give you those things. Only Jesus can. And it really doesn't matter because as Jerry told us yesterday, it's all going to burn. You're just moving paper. It's just an opportunity in an arena to be God's man in the marketplace. He tells us to work and work heartily for him, but he's meeting our needs. You're not there to earn a living. Uh, and further, in Ecclesiastes 2, if you had, Solomon, who had a whole lot more resources than anybody in this room, explored pleasure, accomplishments, possessions, wealth, and fame. And he concluded in verse 11 of chapter 2, Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done, and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind. I cannot find fulfillment in that. <laughs> You're working on a bunch of stuff that really doesn't matter. It doesn't mean you shouldn't work on it, by the way. I don't know why God has us spend so much of our time in endeavors that he's going to burn up. But it's the environment where we interact with people and the relationships he gives us. And it's also an act of obedience. He told us to work. What are you to question? Just, you know, I do, I've done a lot of things working with people that made no sense to me, but they're the boss. He's the boss. If you don't understand, just do it anyway. He'll meet your needs. Daniel Patrick Moynihan coined a phrase a number of years ago when he was in the, the uh, Nixon administration of benign neglect. This is another one we've already, I don't need to spend much time on. Uh, ignorance is bliss, at least in the short run. Because we, uh, Walt has already talked yesterday about the fact that uh, when you've got an unedited Bible sitting somewhere in your house, God's going to hold you accountable to, to open it up and reading it. And you will not be able to say, uh, I just didn't know. I'll tell you, it, in truth, our lack of thought, let alone pursuit, of the application of our faith in God's Word in the marketplace over years would put us 
in prison if we use the same effort to apply the regulations that the federal government and the state give us for our occupations. We have, uh, in the insurance business, I can tell you, we, we'd be in a world of hurt if we didn't spend a ton of time figuring out how to apply the rules that they give us. How much time do we spend thinking about how to apply the rules that God gives us? And they can only, as Jesus said, they can only kill you. No big deal. <laughs> it's got to be intentional neglect, or if it's not outright rebellion. It's embarrassing at best. But we need to start applying our minds to God's Word at our businesses. I think, truthfully, uh, most men know when they just avoid it. They, impl- they don't like the implications because they just don't really trust God, as I said. Uh, there's a, a great illustration about us not thinking. If uh, There was a guy named Jeff McNeely who was a great political cartoonist. He died a few years ago. And he also had a, a Sunday cartoon called Shoe. It was a bunch of birds, remember? And they had the old professor. And he's looking at the his editor. They both work at the paper. His editor is this old crow. And there's, you know, at the bar, the editor's got a cigar. They've got their big beers in front of him. And the professor looks at him and says, you know, we've known each other over 20 years now. And in that time, uh, we have never talked about the important issues of life. Never our hopes or our dreams why we're here, where we're headed, uh, our purpose, none of that. So we spent our whole time talking about funny stories, sports, uh, experiences we've had together, last week's game, irrelevancies and trivia. And the crow looks at him and he says, you know, I've never thanked you for that. (laughs) And the professor says, don't mention it. That's us. <laughs> That's us. We spend our lives on trivia. We never think about the big issues. And we need to. We need to. Joshua 1.8, This book of the law shall not depart your, from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that, why? You may be careful to do all that it says. Then you'll have success, and you, then God will make your way prosperous. You know, we need to be applying ourselves daily, thinking about how it affects what we do Monday to Friday. The opposite of ignorance is not knowledge, it's obedience. The opposite of ignorance is not knowledge, it's obedience. Jesus becomes incarnate in your life as you obey. That's what we just, John fourteen twenty one. that's just what we were talking about. Ignorance is the application. Your ignorance of the application of God's work, of, of God's word at your work, will be judged. So it's enjoy it. It's bliss, but just for the short term. Next problem we have is that God's commands are countercultural. They're counterintuitive. They're illogical. Walt's been talking about that. A lot of them make no sense at all, and they certainly run right in the face of most business principles. My ways are not your ways, God says. You're going to look, but the problem is if we apply them, you look stupid, naive, or legalistic. You look like you remember 
uh, Bill Dana, oh, Jose Jimenez. That's what you look like when you apply God's word. My name, Jose Jimenez. Or, or who's like Andy Kaufman and Taxi, Lotso. That's what we, we look stupid. What are you thinking? You don't have to, you don't have to follow that contract. They can't enforce it. What are you, an idiot? We don't have to pay him that. He's got, he's got no legal right. Don't tell them that. If, they, if you tell them that, they won't buy our product. Be crazy. Let them find that out on their own. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him. What part of that is hard for us to understand? Yeah. Do you believe God? You're willing to look a little stupid now to look real smart later. To look real smart later. We are fools for Christ's sake. There's a big payoff. Any comments or questions, even if you were paying attention? But see, my stuff's easy to swallow. I'm not mean like Walt. <laughs> well, how do you turn it around? Um, what? Okay, yeah. Number four. Darn. Uh, there was an old preacher that, in, in relation to your comment that just said, uh, I'd rather be a fool for God than the wisest man in the world. He, he understood. And he understood the cost. The temporal cost, too. We need to get serious about pursuing God in His Word. It's important. You know, it's like James Carville, if he were, if he writes, says, it's your relationship with Jesus, stupid. <laughs> we need to begin to search the Scriptures to find God, to spend time with Him, to be still. John 17, 3, And this is eternal life, that they may know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom I have sent. God is so interesting that that's the biggest benefit of coming to know Christ. It's to come to know Christ. To actually get to know the most interesting person in the universe and gain an understanding of how he thinks. It's an incredible statement. Not about God, but to actually know Him. But we have to pursue that relationship. We have to obey Him when He shows us what He wants us to do. I was looking at, uh, you know, the comment we, all, we often talk about, that uh, the Lord has sought out for Himself a man after His own heart, talking about David, it's reiterated in Acts uh, 13.22, that's in 1 Samuel 13.14. David had a, was a man after God's own heart. I started to think about it because I said, I want to be like David. But you ever think about what that means? What does it mean? To, it didn't mean that God gave David a different kind of a heart from the rest of us. It means that David pursued God's heart. That he was after it. Man, I'm after that girl. I'm after that contract. I'm after God's heart. See, it's, it's actually the... the uh, Hebrew word is the hind part, the behind, <laughs> that which follows. Right on, you know, it's right behind the front. You're on God's case. Tracking around. That's what it means when Jesus says, follow him. You're tracking him around. And what you want to do is you want to imitate his ways, his priorities, his values, his perspective. It's all different from ours. You've got to pursue it. 
You gotta be after it. You gotta, you know, just trail around him like when you needed an answer to a question from a professor in college. You just, you know, following him until he finally gets a minute to turn around. That's what you do. And that's what David did. Apart from God, he said, I have no good thing. He was after God's heart. Same heart as us, but it changed as he followed God. Well, one of the things that makes it hard for us to trust God is he just doesn't uh, see things the way we do. And that disparity uh, of the way God looks at stuff and the way we look at stuff makes it hard for us to trust him. He defines the purpose of work different, success, perspective. All those things are different. In fact, he, you know, we look at death as this horrible thing. God, it was a gift from God after the fall. He looks at living in the environment we're in now as the worst part. He, so, you know, we say, how could he kill that person? You go, Whew. he's probably going, man, isn't it great? They, they get out of all that mess and they're in heaven now. They have less time that they have to be accountable for. It's a different perspective. Because he doesn't think like us, we many times misinterpret what he's doing. You've got to really try to pursue his mind and get to know him and the way he approaches stuff. And Because it, it's just different from us. His ways are not our ways. So that it changes us. Uh, you need to grasp his point of view to trust him. And if you try to trust him without doing that, you cannot sustain it. Keep the show up for a while, but you can't sustain it. That's why Romans 12, 2 is so important. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That takes time. That takes thinking. That takes meditation. That takes concentration on how the implications of Scripture and how to apply it. You're just going to have to, over the long haul, Understand that the only thing that will sustain you is your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. Because the better you know Him, the more you're going to trust Him. The more you trust Him, the more you can obey Him. The less you know Him, the less you trust Him, the less you trust Him, the less you obey Him. And you'll never get bored. That's the one thing you don't have to worry about. Jesus said, and he appointed 12, I mean, in, in Mark, in describing Jesus in, in Mark 3, 14, says he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out. It's just, how simple is that? That's, just, you know, the core verse on discipleship. But it's so important. Just, Jesus, he gives us the opportunity just to be with him. Just be with him. Abide in me. And if you don't, you, you're going to have to suffer the consequences uh, I go back to the book of Judges because it's such a great illustration of my business. <laughs> Chaos all over the place. Unbelievable events occurring that you just can't believe people could treat other people like that. And, um, but in, in Judges, it says in chapter 2, it, gives us, it tells us what happened that brought about all this chaos. And in discussing, it says, And a generation arose... They did not know God nor his works. They didn't know who he was or what he did. And it says, then, and you can put in your life, you can put a then. Because if you don't know God and you, and, and, and you don't know what he does, how he acts, then this is what's going to happen in your life. You're going to sin, because it said they did evil. You're going to eventually forsake God. In other words, go somewhere else. To look for answers. You're going to follow 
that somewhere else. And it says that the people of Israel, they forsook the Lord, and then they followed after the other gods, the other gods of the other peoples. Because whenever you don't follow God, you follow somebody. We are followers by nature. And so they followed somebody else, God judged them, and then you get into the, 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 the cycle starts. Disobedience, distress, repentance, deliverance, disobedience, and it goes right through. The problem was, the reason they could never stand, in fact, it says in that chapter 2, if you read through it, that they went right back to the sinning as soon as the judge died. Because they didn't know God and they didn't know what he did. So they could never sustain it. And the same thing's true in our life. Knowledge of God is the only thing, guys, that'll keep you from sin. Because you'll, you'll get scared of him, in part. But also you'll understand what he holds out for you if you obey, and what he's like, and how he thinks. So either God will influence you, or those around you. And most of us, without saying, we imitate those other successful companies. We imitate those the, guy, the gurus. And then you'll follow. You'll end up following them and forsaking God. And then I'm going to tell you, no matter what He does, how He deals with you, you're still going to go right back there. You'll never get it. Your perception of reality will be distorted, and even dramatic events will not turn you around for any length of time. Which they were just the same as us, and so we've got to pursue God. You got to do it one truth at a time too. There's been a a lot that you take in this weekend. Well, you know, just deal with that which is right in front of you, like Jesus did. You don't have to get it all. You just got to. What's the issue God brings up today, and you deal with that one. What did God show? So it's a great question. What did God show you today? What's God showing you now, and what are you doing with it? That's and, and you know just you can't do any more than one at a time anyhow. So just grab something. You got all this good stuff. When you walk into your office, think about the first issue you got. Say, okay, now how? What does the Bible got to say about this? What principles would have application here? There are any commands that we need to be aware of? It all applies. And you just got to pray about it. Think about the implications. Reflect. You know, I'd encourage you to get some buddies who will help hold you accountable because you'll need that. Because remember, I can see your logs and I can't see my splinters. <laughs> you need a buddy who can, who can see your stuff easier than you can. Uh, so, and then you got to keep reviewing. Got to keep reviewing. And I love what Hebrews five fourteen says. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good from evil. A lot of implications there. Don't have time to go into it, but it has two key words, practice and training. And I can remember that when I was, I know what that meant when I was in athletics, when I was younger, and even now in the sports I do now. It's repetition. It's repetition. It's doing it right. Oh, correcting yourself, making the little adjustments, and practicing, training yourself over and over again. That's what it takes. Every time, catch yourself, train yourself. Practice it. Rub it into your life. Because it is never automatic. It takes effort. I love that behavioral scientists will tell you that it takes 30 times for us to learn a new habit. In other words, they say that if they take and move the light switches at your house, you will reach the wrong spot 30 times. 
before you'll go to the right spot. Because it goes against your, you, you've, you've, you know, you've got unconscious competence, and so you're going to have to exert a little bit. The same thing's true. If all of our mind heads, there's a way that seems right to us, and in the end it leads to death, you've got to keep reaching for the, you always reach for the wrong spot, you've got to catch yourself every time, and eventually it will become more natural. Even then, you've got to, every now and then, reach for the wrong spot, and you just got to correct yourself. A good place to start is, is God's sovereignty. We've talked about it. I'm not going to spend time on that. I'll just tell you that. Uh, is God really involved in managing the intimate circumstances of your life? Do you really believe that? Because if you do, uh, it has huge implications. It'll remove fear. It'll help you deal with anger, uh, worry. You'll become a grateful person. You'll be able to forgive. It just has all the... If God's really in control and He's a good God and He has your best interest at heart, man, it solves a lot of problems. Grab that one and just start to... When, when the guy, when your competitor does this to you, okay, wait a minute. He might mean it for evil, like Joseph would say, but God meant it for good. So, I don't have to get mad at him. What is it, what is God's doing? And you know, you go, and boy, it just makes it a lot easier. Uh, you're going to need to move your hope to the eternal. Because, uh, you will, uh, receive affliction and trials. There's going to be some hard times. In fact, I have been thinking about this, and I don't have time to go into it, but I, I've come to believe that the short, shorter the time, the, the focus of your hope, the more likely you are to sin. That's why teenagers, you know, who cannot think five minutes ahead, do so many stupid things. Sorry, guys. And I know, guys, I, 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 there's a couple that just broke up. Both of them were Christians. The husband left the wife. And he said, i got to get away now. His perspective was this week. I gotta get out of there now. His wife, who was really a, a problem too, uh, although I'm not gonna say she had an eternal hope, she said, well, at least I thought I was gonna live out the rest of my life with him and grow old. And so she didn't get in as much trouble because her hope was just a little farther. But she still had, was not dealing with issues in their marriage because she was just looking in this life. We gotta get our hope way out there <laughs> for what God has for us in heaven. And, uh, and that, will change a lot of the ways you respond now. Peter advises in 1 Peter 1, 13, Therefore, gird your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus said, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. In our little breakout group, we talked about heaven. Don't have any time to go into that. I want to tell you that it's a lot better. It's worth it. Whatever money can get you, something better in heaven. Whatever the sex can get you, something better in heaven. Not worthy of comparison. God says, I make it worth your while. And you can't even imagine how good it is. We just need to grab hold of that and realize it's true. And get our hope out there. Live like aliens and strangers. And present your bodies a living sacrifice. If you do that, then you're able to deny yourself. You know, when I, I train for triathlons, and I'm able to deny myself because I'm thinking of the next race and how I'm going to feel, how much better I'll feel at the end of that because I did this. Well, you got to realize how much better you're going to feel when you get to God in heaven if you do what He tells you. Because if you don't, if you don't believe that that's better, you will not make the trade. You got to have to trust God. Do you believe Him? If you believe Him, then you'll obey Him. Then you'll obey Him. Let's see. We are really. I'm gonna. I'm gonna start to shut her down here. Um, the, 
Just realize that most men, even Christian men, really believe that what the world offers is better. That's a lie. But they, if, if they don't believe that, they're sure acting like it. Because they simply will not make the trade. They simply don't believe God. You need to work out your entanglements and, and un, unequal yoking. My life is a lot like Laurel and Hardy movie. This is another fine mess you've got me into. I have, um, Walt knows, as he's helped me wrestle through relationships and entanglements. Uh, I recently came out of a yoking situation with another professing believer. It took me two years and a lot of money to get out of. And I'm still not totally disentangled. I'll encourage you guys, if you want to uh, apply faith in the marketplace, look at your life and find out what is it that's preoccupying you, that's, mo- that's encumbering your mobility, and, may- and it's hard to extricate yourself and start to figure out how to get out of that. It may take a lot of time, so you better get started. And I, don't, I cannot tell you what it can, it can be a person. It could be um, anything. Anything that grabs your emotions. Uh, it could be a legal problem financially. And just work to get disengaged so you can move and juke for God. You've got to break through the line of scrimmage so you can get out to the backfield, you know, if you're running back. And so if you're entangled on the line, you're not going anywhere. You've got to break free from that. And that, that could take a lot of time and thought. It's worth it. Um. Don't delay. When God shows you something, delayed obedience equals disobedience. Just tell you that I will eventually means I will not. And a great example of uh, delayed obedience is a fellow named Balaam. If you give yourself enough time, you will rationalize your way to come up with some kind of a loophole in your mind to do that which God doesn't want you to do. And and, and Balaam, fig, you know, the, remember the king came to him and said, Hot curse Israel. And God told him, don't do it. But he kept fiddling around with it. And eventually we know he came up with a way. I tell you what, send the babes down. Lure them into idolatry and then their own God will curse them. And we'll do the same thing if we don't. Man, do it quick before you have a chance to figure out a way around it. If you know something that you ought to do, do it. And that's going to... In part, a lot of that's going to require becoming dependent and broken. And um, there's a lot of other stuff, but uh, we're out of time, and a lot of you guys have to get back. So uh, let's go ahead and close right now. Father, uh, we appreciate greatly that we don't have to buy into the lies, that you give us the truth. Uh, That, Lord, you give us uh, the things that you want us to do, uh, all of your expectations for us are laid out, and all of them are for our good and benefit us. I pray, God, that we would exercise faith in the marketplace, that we'd understand that that means faith in you and applying what you say, believing it to be true and acting on it. I pray that we'd be thoughtful, we'd be men who would be known uh, for their stopping and thinking about what you would have them to do in the midst of an incredibly fast-moving world that gives you all the wrong advice. So as we head back home, Lord, I pray that you help us to grab a hold of that one thing, that one issue where we need to start thinking about uh, what you would do, what you would have us to do in that situation. In Christ's name, amen.